but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. If you are a long-term listener of The Body Serve, you may feel that this is a surprise episode. Yeah. It's, it's not our normal slam recording schedule. We don't normally turn one around this quickly. So much has happened in the wake of Naomi Osaka's original statement about press conferences that we felt like, okay, let's let's just give this the proper treatment and not let it detract from our mid-slam episode where we actually talk about the tennis. You said that very succinctly <laughs> and to the point and accurately. Yeah, we want to have time to actually talk about the tournament come, you know, Saturday or Sunday. So Or Monday. Or Monday. <laughs> we have been working overtime this week. As you probably have heard, Naomi Osaka withdrew from Roland Garros on Monday following an original statement saying that she would not be attending press conferences to protect her mental health. If you've been following along on social media or even the regular news, this set off an absolute firestorm in tennis and and beyond. If you're consuming any kind of culture right now, mm -hmm. it's permeated it. And Naomi played her first round match, which she won in straight sets. She gave an interview on court. And then, of course, she did not go to press that day. To just kind of give you a recap of what led us here, originally, which we talked about in the last episode, Naomi uh, released this statement, this notes app statement on her social media saying she wouldn't be doing press conferences during Rolling Arrows, however long she stayed. Everybody had something to say about this, including us. Mm -hmm. The four Grand Slams co-signed a letter an official response to this proclamation from Naomi, saying that they, while they were concerned for Naomi's well-being, they would be finding her $15,000 for the first Miss press conference, and repeated refusals could result in escalating fines or a tournament default. This was, in effect, throwing gas on the flames. Yes. The flames that, let's be honest, like, we are not exempt from culpability, like we talked about mm -hmm. it. We were part of the conversation as well. A lot of people were talking about it. But the Grand Slam board's first response appeared to be an escalation. Or felt that way for a lot of people. There's so many other ways that they could have responded that didn't look like this. <laughs> right. So this is one of the things that we'll talk about today. Why was the first response punitive in nature uh why did the grand slam board essentially the players uh, de facto employer for the next two weeks why did they respond in a way that seemed to be lacking in empathy and leaned heavier on suspicion that's key because one of the universal responses to this whole situation especially naomi's initial letter was not believing her. Mm -hmm. And not only not believing her, but how do we punish this transgression 
through the avenues that we have. Whether it be discursive punishing by members of the press or, or literal discipline from the tennis governing bodies, there was a, a very adversarial nature to the conversation from the jump. And when I say not believing her, I don't necessarily mean folks saying, wow, she's just using that as an excuse. I don't believe her. It's not always as explicitly stated as that. It can take the form of 15 whatabouts in response to that statement, which then has a net effect of shrouding Naomi in this cloud of nobody taking her seriously. Reporters asked players about this, which is understandable. This is news, and you want to hear what other players' takes are. All but about one or two players were (laughs) firmly in the rules camp. The responses were kind of like, well, I have to go to press conferences, so, well, that's that. That's how it is. Right, but it didn't really feel cynical, per se. It kind of felt, this is what I need to stay neutral. Yeah, it felt like a lot of her peers did not want to touch this Mm -hmm. at all. One person, however, Uh, went in the complete opposite direction. One Belinda Bencic, sounding like she had an axe to grind, said, quote, I respect Naomi's decision, but media is part of the job, and it contributes to a worldwide publicity we have, and we get paid very well. Naomi does a lot of good things. This is where she should have left it. On the other hand, I feel like sometimes it's just about to remain in the talk. And so we have to assume what this means is that remaining in the talk is meaning that Naomi is constantly trying to keep herself in the conversation, Mm -hmm. that she's seeking attention. This doesn't come off particularly well after a year during which Naomi was in protest for much of it. Mm-hmm. Right. One of the reasons that she was in the talk, so to speak, is that she was protesting racist violence in the U.S. And so her job here was to be as specific as possible with respect to what she meant, Belinda Bencich, when mentioning in the talk. Because otherwise, there's only one thing we can assume. And I now do not owe you that benefit of the doubt because you opened this can of worms unprovoked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Naomi has remained relevant because people keep paying her to endorse things. She keeps winning tennis tournaments. She, yeah, she makes statements about racial justice issues that she finds are important. Those things are not always easy, right? That doesn't mean that she craves attention. Meanwhile, the things that Belinda Bencic is out here making statements on are Instagram posts in defense of Alexander Zverev. So that is the way that she remains in the talk. Taken together, it's not the best look. We also had the sense that some folks weren't taking this seriously at all. And that included the tournament itself. Because on Saturday, they tweeted four pictures of players. Arena Sabalenka, Rafa Nadal, Kei Nishikori, and Coco Goff with the caption, they understood the assignment. And these players are all captured in what looks to be an interview setting. Now, for the tournament to do this pretty much immediately after Naomi issues her first statement is beyond wild. It's, uh... (laughs) I... 
just have to laugh because if it was not on purpose, it was so incredibly sloppy. Otherwise, like, what does it mean, right? Uh, immediately, I took it as sinister. Maybe it wasn't meant in that way. Maybe it was just a really nonsensical use of that meme that understood the assignment mm -hmm. meme. Either way, it was so weird. People often use the he understood the assignment or she understood the assignment in situations like, say, Viola Davis's range as an actress. And then they'll show you four pictures of her playing completely different parts right. and say Viola Davis understood the assignment. So this doesn't even really fit the meme. No. And what this does is that it, it runs contrary to the follow-up statements that the tournament will issue later in the week. It's still only Wednesday. And we feel that we are late in recording this episode. Mm. So much has happened. That action is not the type of thing you do if you are, in fact, concerned about a player's mental health. Right. And if someone tweeted it by mistake or recklessly and didn't realize how it would be interpreted, then I'm glad they deleted it. And we can now move on. But uh, maybe be a little more careful next time. Tweet some beautiful pictures of players <laughs> on the clay. Like, there's, you know, there's so many things you can tweet. Naomi opened the tournament. She was the first match on on Philippe Chatrier. She won on Sunday. Come Monday, after the French Federation's statement, which, mind you, was in conjunction with the other three Grand Slams. Mm-hmm. After that happened, Naomi withdrew from the tournament on Monday. As predicted, whether she had been defaulted or she withdrew, this news drew attention from everywhere, right? This first it goes to other parts of Twitter, very famous black celebrities, non-black celebrities. Everybody seems to be talking about this. It's penetrating beyond the sports section of the daily papers, Earth, Wind, and Fire is wishing her support on Instagram. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Did you know they had an Instagram account? I will follow now. Hillary Clinton tweeted today. Dionne Warwick tweeted today. <laughs> the, the universality of Naomi Osaka as a cultural icon is now in the realm of Serena. This is not to say they've achieved nearly the same scope of things on a tennis court, but the cultural response outside of tennis when something happens with Naomi, we're seeing that she's it's, of... It's approaching epic levels. Like Yeah, there's, there's only two people in tennis on the woman's side. There's only two people in tennis, period, <laughs> who can do that right now. I want to go back and make a quick point about the tournament's response to Osaka, in effect threatening to default her if she continued to win and continued to skip press conferences. If you recall last year at the onset of the pandemic, the French Federation went alone and booked their own spot in the fall calendar, completely ignoring the other three Grand Slams and completely blindsiding them. However, in this instance, when they feel like they have a collective interest to protect, when they have a woman's voice to stifle, when they have a player who they probably deem as a threat to their bottom line, they're quick to issue this statement together. Mm -hmm. So before we move on, you wanted to read Naomi's actual statement so we can sort of fully understand what was said. Oh, you're going to allow me to read it? Mm -hmm. It is quite long, so... Before we started this episode, we had a little bit of a quibble-quabble, and it happens every time 
there's a statement to read more than three sentences. Yeah, you really you don't need to read the whole thing. And but I we're keep going trying to, to remind you. you that not everybody who listens is on tennis Twitter or would have seen the entire statement. They may have seen snippets of it on the video coverage. Okay. Anyway. Hey, everyone. This isn't a situation I ever imagined or intended when I posted a few days ago. I think now the best thing for the tournament, the other players, and my well-being is that I withdraw so that everyone can get back to focusing on the tennis going on in Paris. I never wanted to be a distraction, and I accept that my timing was not ideal and my message could have been clearer. More importantly, I would never trivialize mental health or use the term lightly. The truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression since the US Open in 2018, and I've had a really hard time coping with that. Anyone that knows me knows I'm introverted, and anyone that has seen me at the tournaments will notice that I'm often wearing headphones as that helps dull my social anxiety. Though the tennis press has always been kind to me, and I want to apologize especially to all the cool journalists who I may have hurt, I am not a natural public speaker and get huge waves of anxiety before I speak to the world's media. I get really nervous and find it stressful to always try to engage and give you the best answers I can. So here in Paris, I was already feeling vulnerable and anxious, so I thought it was better to exercise self-care and skip the press conferences. I announced it preemptively because I do feel like the rules are quite outdated in parts, and I wanted to highlight that. I wrote privately to the tournament apologizing and saying that I would be more than happy to speak with them after the tournament as the slams are intense. I'm going to take some time away from the court now, but when the time is right, I really want to work with the tour to discuss ways we can make things better for the players, press, and fans. Anyways, hope you're all doing well and staying safe. Love you guys. I'll see you when I see you. That was a lot. Yeah. Uh, my first reaction was, that's really sad. And how did we get here? Right? How did things get so out of control that this is the outcome? Another reaction from me is that it was very generous of her. Right. Because she addressed, even though she didn't have to, she addressed a lot of the critiques that were leveled at her in this statement. Yes, like clearly she's been reading or listening to the things that have been said about this topic. She understands that some journalists have hurt feelings based on how she worded her first statement, and she acknowledged that. She didn't have to acknowledge these things, but she chose to. Because a lot of, on the flip side, a lot of the journalists who have been writing about it have not apologized or acknowledged the ways they fell short in discussing this issue. No, this issue. no, no, no. I also want to say that it was very brave of her. And that we take for granted that it's easy to come out and speak about something like this. But she's labeled what she's been going through as depression. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit later about how it needed to get to that point for folks to take her seriously. Right. So the French Federation responded, of course, and said, quote, First and foremost, we are sorry and sad for Naomi Osaka. The outcome of Naomi withdrawing from Roland Garros is unfortunate. We wish her the best and the quickest possible recovery and we look forward to having Naomi at our tournament next year. As all the Grand Slams, the WTA, the ATP, and the ITF, we remain very committed to all athletes' well-being and to continually improving every aspect of players' experience in our tournament, including with the media, like we have always strived to do. All right. Uh, <laughs> Quickest possible recovery. Mm -hmm. Which is, uh, you know, sort of an odd construction when you're talking about something like depression. As if it's like a broken ankle. 
you know, this statement is all well and good, except for the quickest possible recovery thing, but it is a bit, uh, it's a bit precious when you think about the statement they had issued a few days earlier, mm. right? Which was uh, still, you know, still laid on some of the PR heavy, oh, we're concerned and we care about mental health and all that, but made very, very clear to mention that there would be disciplinary actions coming, which was uh, in effect a way to warn other players, don't think that you have power like she does. Don't mess with us. That's exactly what that <laughs> was, because they could have easily not issued a statement. They could have said, well, you know what? We'll see how this plays out. We can probably avoid a whole kerfuffle, because Naomi probably won't make the second week. She right. struggled on clay. We'll, we'll play day by day, see how it goes, and find her incrementally maybe we'll start at 7000 because we have the discretion to do mm. that and then it can it can it can go up to 1520 if she's at the back end of the tournament and then we can have a discussion no they wanted to make an example out of her right away because the decision was made to interpret Naomi's first statement as aggressive mm -hmm. right <laughs> they chose not act to of see aggression because uh, probably from her side she was thinking well Honestly, I'm telling you in advance, I'm not going, and I'll pay. And maybe she thought that would have been the end of discussion. Maybe it wasn't the best way to go about it, which she acknowledges. Well, here we are. It's also clear that they did not take the mental health part of it seriously. Well, if you they, had, they would you have, over it, would you have issued a statement like that if you had in the first place? It's akin, I mean, there are folks who approach this issue by saying, well, it's, it's her job. She needs to do the press conferences because everybody does it. If you're a tennis player, that's what you have to do. Now, if you're taking the position that a tennis player playing at the French Open is, is a workplace environment, mm -hmm. then what we saw was one of the employees letting their employers know that they're struggling with their mental health and asking for some accommodation to be able to take care of themselves during this time. But also letting them know that I'm aware of the current penalty structure and what you'll dock me as an employer. Right. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do it with no fuss. Like I'm not arguing with the penalties, right? I'll pay it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what that was. Mm -hmm. So you can't have it both ways. You can't be like just spouting off saying, well, it's a job, it's a job. You just have to do it. And then not take into account the ways current modern day working environments make allowances for folks dealing with mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Now, so I want to talk more about this workplace thing because we know it's a very untraditional workplace. We know that some people get very upset when you throw around the word employee and employer willy-nilly because we know <laughs> they're, they're technically independent contractors. The term independent contractors is doing a whole lot of work these days uh, linguistically in tennis right just because someone is an independent contractor does it mean that you are absolved of all responsibilities as an organization i don't think so some people do uh the thing is i'm i'm surprised at how many people line up to argue that you know people should just do their jobs like with no fuss i i do not expect people to kick up a fuss for a multi-millionaire athlete like i really don't I, mm -hmm. you know if if you don't feel like you have a dog in this fight i get it if you feel that this person is powerful enough that they don't need you advocating for them 
I get that as well. I just don't really get the the impulse to accept things exactly as they are and say the status quo is honestly fine. Which I think is what the main tenet was of our first episode. Right. Talking about this issue. But to what you were just saying, it's also not okay to think that because she just made $50 million last year that she should man up or woman up, as Martina Navratilova would say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That because she's rich, she is immune to mental health issues. Right. And so, although this is not a traditional workplace, it is a workplace nonetheless. It is where people do their business. And if a player expresses very publicly that they're struggling mentally right now, the institutional response was to threaten her job or threaten her assignment for the next two weeks, threaten her opportunity to make money, right? Why was that the first response? I understand that it's against the rules. So follow the rules and find her or think about whether the rules make sense for everyone. Those are two other options. Because lost in all of this discussion as well was a lack of focus on whether the press conference itself is a meaningful, useful vehicle in sports reporting and whether this is something that needs tweaking or needs overhauling. That conversation wasn't really being had. We kept having people and institutions acting wildly out of pocket, disproportionately so, and creating this tornado of discourse that really took away from the initial meaning of Naomi's first message. Mm -hmm. It, yeah, it was just the asymmetry for me. It was the lack of a proportionate response or discussion from the tennis governing bodies or a, a large section of the press. You talked about the asymmetry of the response. Something that popped out to us and a lot of folks talking about this on Twitter was how quick folks were to check this young woman for something that didn't really need checking when in fact, the French Federation listed seven of the governing bodies, all seven of the governing bodies in their response to Naomi withdrawing. We've seen nearly nothing from any of them regarding any of the ills perpetrated by men on the ATP tour. None of them have acknowledged specifically what's going on with Zverev. Neither the ATP nor the Grand Slams have taken any action about Basilashvili, who is currently facing... A court case. He's actually in court. Yes, a criminal trial. A criminal trial in Georgia. I've seen a lot of bad faith arguing about how these are incompatible because the ATB can't do anything. And get, like, I don't know how many times we have to say this. I'm not saying that they have to be suspended or that any particular course of action has to be made. I'm asking for the literal barest of minimums. They have not even been acknowledged. The ATP issued one statement saying, we are aware of something. The, the statement itself was vague. We are mm. aware of something, but we cannot do anything unless they're court proceedings, essentially. No, that wasn't it. Unless there is like a, a verdict handed down by a court. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't even that, you know, well, Basilashvili is in court now. Can we at least deal with him? I mean, because guys, they know they'd, al they'd already dropped the ball on that one. There's 
literally like a lower threshold in civil court cases, right? People can be held liable for things that they were deemed criminally not guilty of. We're talking about like a very low bar here. Any acknowledgement would be fine. And so, you know, you may feel that these things are incompatible, but what we saw this week from the French Federation and the other slams is like statement, 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 another statement, two more statements. Like, okay, we got it. And then everybody on tennis Twitter had a statement. There were people announcing why they didn't have a statement. I mean, I would just like to see a little more noise about more consequential things. Before we get to the discourse surrounding Naomi's first letter and how varying factions responded to it, let's ask a pointed question here. Where is the PTPA on this matter? Where are the players' councils? Because I triggered a lot of people by mentioning the PTPA. You know, you know, came out yes, with the I, talking points. I, I do, yeah. I don't know if there's like a, like a monthly convention or something where the talking <laughs> points are drafted, but they were there. And <laughs> No, but you're right. It's not just the PTPA. It's not. Because no, it's each not. tour has their players' council. The WTA has a players' council. Why haven't we heard from them? I mentioned the PTPA because... This is a body that has, I mean, has formed, has proclaimed itself the voice of players. Just because a player hasn't engaged directly with that organization, does that mean that this doesn't affect players who have, right? I I just, I don't really understand the silence from any of these councils or associations. They've made it clear that they're not a union, but the way they want to operate functions somewhat as a union. And we know that in any workplace that works with the unions... You don't even have to tell them what's going on. Once they catch wind, there will be there will be right. statements. The statement is drafted. There's a particular tone of voice. You know what's going to come in. There's a handbook. There are bylaws. <laughs> there's subsections. I'm just saying that any any association that exists to serve players and act as a conduit for their voice to the governing bodies, be it the PTPA, be it a players' council, whatever, it's d- disappointing that none has really said anything about the issue and i understand that we are in the middle of a grand slam people are trying to Mm. do their job right this is one of four times a year where the pressure is absolutely on right but this is also the time when these meetings happen yes these are one of the few times in the calendar where the men and the women are at the same event on mass it was also a missed opportunity because if you are the ptpa and you have been floundering in the public's eye since your inception. If you mm-hmm. have failed to date to really come up with a mandate to get overwhelming or even sufficient support from a plurality of players, this could have been an opportunity to show A, what you're about and B, the strength that you could have and what yeah, you could yeah. do for players. I mean, if, if you look at it cynically, like this is a zeitgeist thing. This is a way to get your organization attention to get cachet Mm -hmm. and and let's say i mean if there are supports that exist in the background that we don't know about it this is also a great time to talk about those things and even take some credit for it if credit can be given Mm -hmm. you know uh you know a few of the other arguments floating around this week have been well naomi should have handled this better and maybe so i mean i don't think we are (laughs) innocent of that I feel like we were yeah, pre- probably yeah, better yeah. than most, but there were probably parts where, on the last episode, where 
we acknowledged where she could have said things better. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not doing this episode to like erase what was said in the last episode. No. Um, if I made mistakes or if my opinion changed, then uh, I completely own that. And your opinion can change because you were wrong. And it's okay to say you were wrong. Right, right. That's one of the learning moments from this whole <laughs> scenario. So maybe, you know, maybe she should have handled it better. Maybe she sh- should have handled it differently behind closed doors. The same could be said for a lot of people, for us, for the people who run tennis, for a lot of the tennis beat journalists. Yeah, they probably could have handled it better, too. Instead, what you got was this escalating situation where different sides were firing shots at each other. And the central theme was righteousness. It's who is the most righteous, who is the most correct, when the thing that set it off was just like a tiny spark, <laughs> you know? It's clear that from the journalist's perspective, they took this personally. Yeah. The reaction that we saw up until Monday evening, after Naomi withdrew, the near-universal response was, she's throwing the tennis media collectively as one whole undifferentiated unit under the bus. Mm-hmm. And I... I honestly read through that statement multiple times in my head, and maybe it's because I don't consider myself part of established tennis media, or maybe it's because I don't know the full 100, or maybe even the full 25% of what it's like to cover the tour on a week-to-week basis. Maybe that gives me a little bit of distance from it. But when I read that statement... I didn't, I mean, I guess I can see that reading of the statement, but I didn't feel that reading of the statement. For me, it was, in her own way, Naomi was making it clear that it's not all journalists. Right. And listen, I understand if some journalists felt, like, professionally insulted, like, oh, you know, I thought we had treated you pretty fairly and... uh, you know, we had a good time in press or whatever, that we had this professional relationship. And now you're saying, oh, it's our fault that this is the way you feel. The thing is, like, an emotion can't really be incorrect. No. But I don't believe that that's what was said in the original state. I don't think Naomi said Mm -hmm. that. I don't think she meant that. That's how some people interpreted it. And I get it. And I think me way more than you tried to protect this you know the journalistic bubble right yes. so not not to disparage the the form like the process of journalism but call out individuals who may have acted badly yeah because you are very much coming from it from a place of the destruction of tennis journalism and journalism at large is one of the indicators of like a crumbling democracy (laughs) maybe not that dramatically people in prisons and autocratic rule and all that stuff right and like you know to be clear this is sports this is not um right incredibly consequential but you know no but that's one of the defenses of tennis journalism and the press conference as is like if you attack this then what is there oh yeah like it's a slippery slope and And i don't buy that slippery slope because at the end of the day it's sports. Mm-hmm. And Jonathan Liu in, was The Guardian, right? Mm-hmm. Wrote uh, a very self-reflexive essay about 
sports journalism about how, you know, we have acted badly and press conferences aren't as useful as we think they are. And part of his argument was that there are so many profound and dangerous attacks on the press everywhere all the time. And like, this isn't it. But to your previous point, yes, absolutely. If you felt offended by this, you are absolutely valid in feeling that way. My issue was when folks then left their WhatsApp chat messages and WhatsApp groups where that's the place to get this out. Yeah. Like get it out with their friends and your colleagues and then take it to the internet and act all indignant about it and add to this frenzy surrounding the the story. Mm-hmm. Like you are now then inserting yourself in the story, which is like, hello, one of the basic tenets of <laughs> journalism. Right. Like I did journalism for one year in undergrad, and that's probably the only thing I remember. <laughs> it was like 101 A through F. <laughs> no, but really, you know, some reporters saw themselves as the center of the story or felt the immediate impulse to defend themselves as if their essence had been mm-hmm. attacked. And it took me a long a long while to get here, and this was a, just a long-winded setup. But the title of this episode is, Does This Apply to Me? And it's inspired from our Twitter friend and former guest on the show, Frith, in Australia. Her pinned tweet is, if it doesn't apply to you, they're not talking about you. So if you know you've been nothing but respectful and I don't want to put a value judgment on it, but you've had no issues with Naomi in the past, then she ain't talking about you. That's the way I look at it. <laughs> if you're extremely loud about it, does that mean you have a guilty conscience? Why do you assume it's about you? And why, if it's not about you, does your voice then need to be lent to defend other people for whom it's about? And we know that there are some people who need to be rooted, need to be weeded out of the press corps. Like, that's just a fact. And so my question is, instead of defending folks in the abstract, defending the institution, defending journalism, defending the attack on the profession, why not just sit there in your feelings and work through them? Take a minute to collect yourself and understand that we understand that it's not all journalists, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it's not all white women who voted for Trump. Not all men. It was a plurality, but it wasn't. (laughs) It's not all white people. You know, like, you can take this approach to every situation where a group of people is being called out. And so what I'm pushing back against here is the proportionality. That's one of the themes here. The response from the federations to Osaka's letter and also the proportionality in response from the journalists. Mm. Like we said earlier, it's it's totally normal for reporters to ask other players how they feel about this. Because whether you like it or not, it has news value. The thing that's different about this is that reporters have a personal stake in the response. So any, any sort of tweeting or writing about this uh, is necessarily meta, right? It's bigger mm-hmm. than that. It's the reporter, whether he or she intends it, it seems to be making a comment on the response itself. And not to say that these shouldn't be news or they shouldn't be published, but that reporters should be aware that objectivity is, uh, while a goal, not ultimately an, an attainable goal. 
I make the argument that it's not ever fully attainable while covering sports. And we've made the argument that it's always best practice to acknowledge your biases mm-hmm. when covering sports. But in this particular instance, it is absolutely not 100% attainable, even if you disagree with me, because you are part of the story. You've made yourself... Okay, fine. You want to say Naomi made you part of the story? You made the story bigger. Mm-hmm. And you stand to benefit from writing about the story and asking other players about the story. Like, when, when Naomi becomes part of the cultural zeitgeist where you have Hillary Clinton tweeting about her from her walk in the woods <laughs> when all these celebrities from such varied walks of life are giving life to this story we cannot we cannot sit here and pretend like there isn't some benefit to now being able to ask and write about the response to this story like we will we will benefit from it most likely we're talking about a timely issue that a lot of people outside of tennis want to hear about. Mm-hmm. We may get folks listening to the show who may never have even dreamed of listening to a tennis podcast mm-hmm. before. Yeah. The point here is the self-awareness, the willing to engage with your own rolling things, and ultimately acknowledge where you may have put a foot or two wrong. After Naomi's withdrawal and the statement that accompanied it, there was a pivot in the responses. Immediately. And now, the important thing is it was, it typically wasn't an apology or an acknowledgement that we were wrong the first time. It was just a pivot. <laughs> you know, okay, my opinion has changed and uh, forget what I said before. The most glaring one being Martina Navratilova. Yes. On air, literally saying she does not believe this is a mental health issue and that Naomi should man up. Oh, I guess I should say woman up. And then the very... <laughs> The very next day, mm-hmm. then issuing what would, under normal star circumstances, been a perfect, a pitch-perfect tweet. But it doesn't come with the context of having seen and heard what she said the day before. Right, right. Uh, the fact that man-up is even in your lexicon is troubling to me. Changing it on the spot from man-up to woman-up, okay, well, great. You've taken the misogyny out of it. <laughs> But it's still incredibly insensitive. It's so demeaning and condescending. Uh, It doesn't make it much better. It just makes it less sexist. It makes it less wrong. Uh, I guess. But then, you know, issuing a tweet the next day saying, I'm so sad about Naomi. I hope she'll be okay. When confronted with, hey, you said this literally yesterday, the response from Martina was, and? It was, well, now I have more information. So (laughs) what about it? I just, I don't know what to do with it. I really don't. What that, what that tells you is that folks needed that clarification, mm-hmm. right? They needed, they needed Naomi to show you her prescriptions, to tell you what she's been on, to tell you what specifically has been affecting her, and to label it with something that they not only can understand, if only tangentially, but something that they deem to be a valid mm-hmm. reason. Yeah, so that's where I want to get with this is... The idea that had you told us all this before, oh, we would have reacted completely differently. And so what's required of someone is a, is a disclosure, is a confession even. And it's the idea that confession is cleansing. It's not only a requirement, but it's cathartic. I don't know if you've read Foucault. I was Let's not, not go there. I did not read Foucault. But, but this public performance of a disclosure was demanded 
and it was given. And now that the confession has been made, people take it seriously. It's as if someone with mental health issues or mental illness is guilty of something and must feed the crowds and confess it. That's what this feels like. And maybe you feel like that's a little bit dramatic, but I don't, you know, I don't feel that even a public figure like Naomi has to be very specific about what they are struggling with mentally, because mental health is health. Mental health is my medical business, but it was demanded. And what you're saying there about feeling that people who are dealing with mental health issues, that they're guilty of something, specifically in this case, that Naomi was guilty of scamming her way through this tournament. Oh, yeah. That she'd be benefiting from an uneven playing field, which was one of the things that the French Federation said in its initial statement, which we know to be, talk about objectivity being 100% unattainable for journalists, fairness within the current setup of tennis is 192.3 million percent right. unattainable. Like, and it's been explicitly told to us that, hey, well, you know what? They're top players. They deserve better than you, plebes. Right. I, at the Australian Craig Open Craig Tiley said something yeah. similar to that at the Australian Open, that top players will get benefits. So, mm-hmm. you know, don't worry too much about it. A, a for-profit sports industry is obviously set up to benefit top players disproportionately. That's just a plain truth. But I think like in sports, we we learn that sports are a meritocracy. And in some ways they are because the person with the most skill, with the most athletic ability, many times that person will be the most successful, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes no, but more so than a lot of other areas of our society, people who are good at sports win. But of course, if you strip away all those, all that ideology and look at the business, yeah, like top players have massive benefits. And do some people cynically exploit our newfound acknowledgement of mental illness? Probably. Do some people make false accusations of abuse? Yes, but not many. So why why is the first response suspicion? And it's also the same way of talking about Naomi's first statement, right? Well, where is the evidence? Naomi needed to be more specific. She was Mm. a little bit vague in the way she talked about what she's been going through. I I can't accept that. Right. Or she she misused the term mental health in a way that didn't make sense to a lot of people. Because Um, there, there is absolutely a difference between mental health and mental illness and in... And for the purposes of talking about this within a sporting setting, mental strength. And mm-hmm. we've seen a lot of folks conflate and confuse and misuse all three in the last five yeah. days. And it's also something that we two are still learning a lot about. Totally, totally. We are not outside of this conversation, right? We're not better than it observing it. We, both of us, learn new things about mental illness and mental well-being all the time. And it's so hard to break yourself of that idea that if I was just stronger, if I had a better work ethic, I could put myself back together and not be depressed, right? Like that is so ingrained. And I think that we're slowly getting to a place where people understand that's not the case for people who are actually depressed or, or actually have anxiety. You can't just like trick yourself into being better. And the fact that you were able to maybe face 
stressful, trauma-filled situations in 2020 in standing up for a cause that you believe in shouldn't then be used as ammunition to say, well, if you were strong back then for that, then how can you not be strong right here for this, for something that is just part of your job? There are all these whatabouts that people throw at these conversations that only serve to limit the grace and empathy that we give to people who tell us that they're struggling with things. One thing I want to mention is there's this, I don't know what the word is, there's this theme or meme or whatever among a lot of millennials and Gen Z folks who tweet jokes about their anxiety or depression or mental health struggles. This is very common, right? I've I've done the same thing. Tweeted things that without the the layer of humor could be seen as really depressing or really morbid. But younger people on social media, and I think it's sort of like this Tumblr effect, have tweeted very openly about mental illness and sort of poked fun at it to take the air out of it and probably to reduce some of the pain that they're feeling as well. And so Naomi is someone who has done that also, who's who's been open, who's tweeted things about having social anxiety in kind of a jokey way. But those of us who sort of grew up on social media understand that it is kind of a joke and kind of not. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like when people joke about, oh, I couldn't get out of bed today. Ha-ha. You know, that's not <laughs> it. But that's like the tone of it. Yeah. We understand that joking about these things takes away a little bit of their power. And so I I don't really have a conclusion about this, but I do wonder if that contributed to the way that people, you know, to whether they took Naomi's statement seriously or not. There's also a narrative surrounding Naomi that she would experience this linear trajectory of going from precocious, shy, awkward, young teen to fully-fledged, blossoming, burgeoning, superstar supermodel of the world right like you know now she's rich now she she's she knows overcome. lebron she knows lebron james she's friends with serena uh she's she's cool she's, she's no cool. longer that young girl who has anxieties yeah that she's overcome them like, like that, that is a trajectory that folks expected for her and even if we sit here and marvel at the times that naomi has given insightful funny witty maybe unknowingly funny interviews, engaging press conferences, and you walk away and you're like, wow, this person is something else. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it was a comfortable, okay situation for her. The fact that she was able to get through it. You know, I think that's something that we can take away from this situation. It's not just to go back and point to the times where Naomi was visibly upset in press to say, oh, that time in Charleston, 2018, she was definitely not okay then. She was probably less okay then than she is normally. Right. But an introvert may expend a lot of energy being on for those 20 minutes in press, which she she even seemed to reference. Like, it, it takes a lot to kind of psych herself up for those situations. And she does take the time to listen to questions and try to give a real answer. She's not like a two-word answer kind of person in press. So being an introvert myself, I understand after you kind of expend all that social energy, you need to recharge, like alone. As somebody who performed as an extrovert for much of his youth, (laughs) 
buoyed by his intrinsic Leo tendencies and then went in the complete opposite direction <laughs> in early adulthood. Mm-hmm. The, her- who, the hermit direction? Uh, yeah. But who now, oh, I guess when the pandemic's over, waits tables. Like, oftentimes I'd come home and I can't even talk to you. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've just completely spent every ounce of energy physically and emotionally and mentally in those four to eight hours. And I need, like, a long time to come yeah, back from yeah. that. So kn- knowing all these things, and we're learning these things every day, one of my big takeaways from this whole saga is why why did so many people choose to react in a very ungenerous way when empathy was right there? Like, empathy and, was just sitting right there for you to take, and it probably would be easier. And it wouldn't have cost most of you anything. Right. Like... I'm not saying that I always react empathetically to things, but I this is like a lesson to myself to maybe take a beat before I respond and say, am I contributing? And more importantly, am, am I doing anyone damage in the way that I'm responding to something? We have this tenet of the way we do this show, and even on Twitter too, where we always try to punch up rather than punch down. Mm. Never punch down. For me, on a on a generous level, this was Naomi and the tennis institutions and the slams punching horizontally. <laughs> Yet, I mean, I would argue that it was Naomi punching up. But the reaction in so many of these instances is for the tennis bodies, the governing bodies, to be viewed as the ones being punched down at. Yeah, that's an interesting Which is, this victim status, right? It's like we've create we've invested in you and you've become too powerful. So we need to rein you in. And the fans and the people who look and follow tennis have bought into that to an extent. Mm, mm. That's the troubling part to me. Yeah. It's like the way although it's law in the United States, now it's the way folks view companies in the US as people. Right. If I were a player and if I were like a player organization, I would probably come away with this thinking like, wow, the slams just acknowledge that we have way more power and influence than I realized we did, right? If one person, if one superstar can do this on their own, what can 10, 20, 30 players do together? Provided those 10, 20, 30 players aren't named Belinda Bencic. (laughs) I mean, uh, the power, that doesn't mean the power will be used for good, but... Players have a lot of influence that maybe they didn't realize. One of the other things that I'm seeing acknowledged a lot more now, it's something that Black people have been talking about for a long time, but it's starting to permeate the public sport discourse, is that people want Black athletes to perform and entertain them without ever considering their humanity. And it's not something that happens just in tennis with Naomi, with Serena, with Venus, with any of the the Black stars that have come before. It's something that we see on a day-to-day basis in all other sports. Mm-hmm. We saw it the other day with Kyrie Irving in the Celtics playoffs game. Mm-hmm. They get things thrown at them. They get spit on by fans. And they're not to These have... These are black a, NBA yeah. stars. And they're not to have feelings about that, right? Mm-hmm. You're just there to perform and entertain. And so, yeah, they're really rich, right? They have a lot of money, but that doesn't mean that when you have a lot of money... Uh, you are immune from being being disrespected or that racism disappears when you've reached a certain level. It's a sick cycle because North American society 
privileges rich people. They look at rich people and wealth as something to aspire to, as something to praise, as something wholesome. But at the same time... And something attainable, which is an important part. Which is the the important Uh, part, because then that keeps them in the game. Because it's like, oh shit, that could be me. I could be that millionaire being uh, guillotined, you know? But at the same time, rich people are held to, in some instances, and this is one of them, inhumane standards. Right, and believe me, I take no pleasure to like defend the wealthy that's not what this is no not at all <laughs> right they have we're very... really being very specific we're talking about rich black athletes <laughs> i think what's important is that yes uh, american culture is obsessed with wealth but racism is a religion we also mentioned on our previous episode that we can never talk about naomi or serena without considering the role that race and in this case gender plays in the way the stories take hold and the way they're talked about. Naomi made this abundantly clear in her statement when she withdrew, saying that she suffered from depression since the 2018 US Open. Now, I know some folks will be inclined to then now pivot and blame Naomi's depression on Serena Williams. That's not what's happening here. Naomi has made it abundantly clear that her and Serena are good. But what we saw then was the way that race was absent it was everywhere and it was also nowhere honestly some of these responses are like that spider-man gif of them pointing fingers at each Mm -hmm. other because it's like oh wait um i thought we were supposed to hate serena being the mean black lady but now we're supposed to hate naomi because she's another black girl that we don't like she was Um, not the black girl we thought she was right i mean (laughs) Do do you remember when we did that episode that watching everything that happened that the only person who gave any insight really into Serena's actions was Zena Garrison. Yep. Mm-hmm. Zena was the only person who said, no, listen, one of the worst things you can do to a black person is question their integrity. And that's what was at play in that US Open mm-hmm. final. The action of pitting black women against each other, which is happening again and again and again, in some ways to demonize Naomi, in other ways to demonize Serena. Like it is, man, it is not helping. And what but have, it is, it is expected. And what have we seen in response to all of this? We've seen Venus being 100% supportive on Instagram. We've seen Serena being 100% supportive. We've had Sloane Stevens out here talking about her own struggles with mental health, calling for empathy and kindness to Naomi Osaka and everybody going through these types of situations, we've seen en masse the black woman in tennis uplifting Naomi mm-hmm. Osaka in this instance. Refusing to be what some people want them to be, right? Refusing to demonize each other and saying, well, if we don't lift each other up, who's going to? And so, yes, we absolutely have to talk about race when we're talking about this situation. We have to talk about the rampant misogyny in society, in sports, the fact that these governing bodies are run by old white men. Like these are things that are always present and that we must always engage with and be one of the first impulses when we start to think about these issues. Once we're able to move past our initial gut reactions, to set aside our feelings, to leave them in the WhatsApp chats and then try to think critically about what's going on. What are the opportunities moving forward 
from this incident. It's an opportunity, <laughs> hopefully, yeah. to have more empathetic discourses surrounding mental health. Yeah, yeah. I think part of it is like to get out of this idea that, oh, you know, you're just not trying hard enough or if you really work on yourself and pull up your socks, you'll you'll get over that depression or whatever. Um, and part of it is like looking at the way we work and the way we live our lives and say, well, is this the best way to do it? Because, I mean, if anything, the, the past year should have led us there. It's given us the flexibility and the opportunity to say, well, things are like this. Should they be like this? S- simple as that. So that's what I, I want to see more of. And I want to challenge myself to do more. It's an opportunity to be more self-reflexive. It's an opportunity to understand that we all get things wrong at various times. And one of the greatest signs of a person's strength and character is the ability and the willingness to acknowledge when we get things wrong (laughs) and say, that just wasn't it. Yeah. We want to put this conversation to bed for now move on and focus on the tennis being played at Roland Garros. You especially wanted to do a follow-up episode because so much had happened since the episode we released on, when was it? Saturday? Friday Friday Friday. night? Saturday? Whenever. And so this will free us up to talk about tennis (laughs) on on our mid-Roland Garros episode. Thank you. If you have sat through another episode about this topic, thank you for listening. Mm Mm-hmm. We uh, wish Naomi Osaka all the very best. We've all re- we've always known Naomi's potential, her role as a conversation starter and game changer. I think that perhaps this was a learning experience for her in terms of getting as firm a grasp as one can on just how big she is mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. I don't. I think she kind of underestimated that. To be honest, and it's heavy. I can't imagine what it, it's heavy for me thinking about it and everything that she's been through. Let alone what it must be like for her to have lived it. So I wish, I just wish she has all the support that she needs right now. But thanks for listening to the Body Serve. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. We are at the Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter. TheBodyServe at gmail.com. I'm doing all the work that you refused to do in the last episode. You can find us uh, on Spotify and your favorite podcast apps. Till next time.